Uh, it's a joy to be over here. I love just getting out here, being in the mountains and this beautiful church building and being with you all again. So it's a, a joy and a privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. And honestly, I don't know how your week's been going, but personally, this has been one of the most difficult weeks of my life in ministry. And I, and I wonder if you're like me when life gets difficult, because the, the first instinct, the first move is just to think, how can I fix it? Right? How can I make things right? What, what is it that I didn't do that I should have been doing? But as we look at God's word, what we see his word telling us is that amid all of our trials, amid all of our adversities, our task is not to keep our eyes fixated on the object of our troubles, but to fix our eyes on the object of our faith, to fix our eyes on the one who stands above and outside of all of the troubles of this world. You know, this text, Psalm 37, which is our text for this morning, has truly been an oasis for me uh, to meditate on, to think about in the the midst of a difficult week. Because what Psalm 37 is doing is it is calling us to not focus and obsess with our troubles, but to focus and obsess upon the Lord. And, And it says it in an even more positive way. It is calling us to delight in the Lord. And, and this morning, that, that's what I want to meditate on with you all. That's, that's the, the, the object of our, our, our passage this morning for us is this. Delight yourself in the Lord, your provider. Delight yourself in the Lord, your provider. And that, that I believe, is the message of Psalm 37. And we're going to see the way this works out in three ways. Delight yourself in the Lord, your provider. By first, desiring God above all else. Second, by having a God-shaped view of our adversaries. And third, by delighting in his provisions. So we're just going to begin with the first statement that I made. Delight in the Lord, your provider, by desiring God above all else. I'm going to read from our text verses 1 to 9. 1 to 9. This is Psalm 37, and I am, I am reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, I realized when I got here, you all used the English Standard Version. So it'll be slightly different worded, but very, very close, very close translations. Psalm 37, Instruction and Wisdom of David. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Making your righteousness shine like the dawn. Your justice like the noonday. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way. By the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. 
You know, this psalm is structured a little differently than, uh, than the majority of our psalms because it's, it's more operating like wisdom literature. And, and, and a lot of wisdom literature has, you know, a ton of, a lot of pithy sayings. And we're going to see a lot of those short kind of punchy sayings in this psalm. But, it, but unlike kind of the, the majority of the Proverbs where the, the, it's, it's hard to just kind of read them through and get one cohesive thought, there is a cohesive thought running through this psalm. And part of that line of thought is this. How do we live in this world when our enemies are those within the camp and not outside of it? So this psalm speaks of our enemies. It speaks of our agitators. It speaks of evildoers. But it's not speaking of those who are outside of Israel. Right? This is David writing to the people of Israel. It's actually speaking of those who are within the camp. They are within Israel. How do we live in this world when our enemies are actually within Notice how the opening of our passage opens and closes in verses 1 and 2 and 8 and 9. I'm just going to read those again because they're, they're helpful bookends to this passage, uh, this, this first section. See, see what he says. He says, Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. And then look now at 8 and 9. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be, that word again, agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. See, the same charge is repeated to us in the opening verses and in the close of those, that little section there. Don't be agitated. Don't let the evildoers agitate you, but hope in the Lord. And sandwiched within those two commands to not be agitated because of evildoers are instructions for how to not let evildoers agitate us. So we're going to look here at verses three through seven. And here's what I want you to do. I want you just to look at your Bible and notice the way these commands are shaped. These are, these are just, again, some of those like kind of punchy commands that you see in the Proverbs, but that are fitting together to drive us in a particular direction. Verse three, look down at your Bibles. Verse three says, trust in the Lord and do what is good. Verse four tells us to take delight in the Lord. Verse 5 tells us to commit your way to the Lord, trust in him. And verse 7 tells us to be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. There's a pattern in these verses. They're, They're very active. To deal with our adversaries requires us to be actively engaged in this life. It requires us to work on the posture of our hearts and to turn ourselves and our attention actively towards the Lord. See, brothers and sisters, if we're going to delight in the Lord and desire God above all else, we need to listen to these instructions of David. Because according to verse three, we're to trust in the Lord and do what is good. Which if you look down again at verse 3, its application for David was to dwell in the land and live securely. And and here's just a question. Do you ever find yourself desiring to run when things get difficult? Notice David's instruction. Trust in the Lord, do what is good, and stay where you are. 
You know, friends, maybe today you have a fellow church member who's upset with you. It may or may not be your fault. And rather than deal with the issue, the temptation is is to, to kind of cut bait and run, right? Go and find a different church. You, you may have found yourself doing this before. Maybe you did it on a larger scale. You, you moved to a, a different city to escape the problems that were in your previous city. See, what, what David is pushing us to do here is not to cut bait and run, but to stay where we are, to trust in the Lord, and to continue to do what is good. And this works against the evildoers. Because rather than run, we stay put. Rather than try and escape, we put our heads down and trust in the Lord and we do our work. And as we're trust, and we trust in the Lord who is the object of our affection. Verse four, we're called to delight in the Lord. You know, and, and this is a verse that has often been poorly understood. It, it's, it's a verse that uh, uh, one time a, a timeshare agent tried to use to manipulate my wife and I to, to buy the timeshare that he was selling us right? Delight in the Lord. He's going to give you the desires of your heart. And the desires of your heart is this timeshare. No, it wasn't. (laughs) And that's not what the verse means. See, I hope what you're seeing is that's not what's happening here, right? Verse three tells us to trust in the Lord and do good. And then we're told to delight in the Lord. See, the result of trusting and delighting is that the Lord will give us our heart's desires. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are our heart's desires supposed to be? God, right? God is to be our heart's desires. He's to be our greatest desire, even though our enemies may be encircling us. He's to be who we trust when life is falling apart around us. He is to be the object of our affections and our delights and our desires. And the result of this is that the Lord will fill our heart with love and affection for him. That the fulfillment of verse four, to take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's that as we desire and as we delight in the Lord, he will fill our desires. In verses five to seven, really continue to build on this theme being developed in in verses three and four. Because the person trusting and doing good and delighting in the Lord is one whose ways are committed to him. That's what he says in verse five. And the one committed to the Lord, if you look down again at verse seven, the one who is committed to the Lord can sit silently before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. See, David is instructing us in how to build godly character. You know, the way most people live in this world has to do with the perception of others, right? All you have to do is is look at social media and and see the way people are trying to build narratives for their lives. They're, They're trying to present a type of family or a type of life that they want others to think that they're living. But, but David's word for us contradicts that, that idea of, of building a life based on others' perception. See, the work that we're called to do is trust in the Lord and do good and know that he is working on our behalf. The work we're called to do is to build outstanding character. 
See verse six. He says, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. The one who trusts in the Lord is the one who trusts that the Lord will shape the perception that others have of us. The Lord will shape our reputation and he will establish it before others. See, we don't have to present a happy front. We have to to delight in the Lord and trust that he is establishing our character and our righteousness before the watching world. You know, that's not a promise that our reputations won't be dragged through the mud and that we won't be misunderstood. It's not a promise that those who desire ill for us will always fail. But what verse seven tells us is that the evil doer may prosper in their evil plans. But see, we're not to be those who are stirred towards evil because of the evil of others. We're to remain steadfast in our ways, delighting and desiring God above all else. And as we desire God above all else, we will second be able to delight ourselves in the Lord, our provider, by having a God-shaped view of our adversaries. See, we delight ourselves in the Lord, our provider, by desiring God above all else. And as we do that, God will give us a view and a perspective of our adversaries. So let's read verses 9 through 22. That, that reading verse 9 again, because verse 9 works kind of as a hinge between that first section and the next one. So verse 9, for evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. The wicked person schemes against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at him because he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and strung the bow to bring about the poor and needy, to bring down the poor and needy and to slaughter those whose way is upright. Their swords will enter their own hearts and their bows will be broken. The little that the righteous person has is better than the abundance of many wicked people. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord supports the righteous. The Lord watches over the blameless all their days, and their inheritance will last forever. They will not be disgraced in times of adversity. They will be satisfied in days of hunger. But the wicked will perish. The Lord's enemies, like the glory of the pastures, will fade away. They will fade away like smoke. The wicked person borrows and does not repay, but the righteous one is gracious and giving. Those who are blessed by the Lord will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be destroyed. Now, if what I mentioned before is that nine works as a hinge. And, and part of why is because, again, this section ends in a very kind of sandwiched way. Verse 9 and 22 repeat themselves. It's the conclusion in verse 9 and 22 is the same. The wicked will be destroyed by the Lord, but the ones who hope in the Lord are those who will inherit the land. And it's really important to consider what David is saying to the people of Israel in in this day, because land inheritance was not a future promise, right? The people of Israel were already in the land. David was conquering all of his enemies, and by the end of his reign, the kingdom would be well-established in all the land so that Solomon would have rest. The land promise is functioning as a comparison between cursing and blessing. 
When David speaks of inheriting the land, he's speaking of those who remain in the favor of the Lord and will receive his blessings compared to the evildoers who will be cut off from the land, who will be destroyed by the Lord. So what verses 9 through 22 are pushing us to do is to shape our perspective. They're calling us to lift our eyes from what is below and look to who is above. Verses 10 and 11 encapsulate this for us. Let's look again at verses 10 and 11. He says in verse 10, A little while and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. Here's what I'm wondering. Does does verse 10 feel like your lived reality? It, It often doesn't feel that way for us, does it? The wicked person sticks around to harass us and make our lives miserable. But the promise here is that those who are humble will inherit the land and enjoy abundant prosperity. What's interesting is in my Bible, verses 10 and 11 are defined by the word will, which implies this future reality, right? If you look again at verses 10 and 11, it says the wicked person will be no more. He, the next line, will not be there. The next line, but the humble will inherit the land. And then that last line, they will enjoy abundant prosperity. You see, this is a promise, but it's a promise without a timeline. See, we have to look at verses 12 to 21 to see what will happen along the way. Verse 13, the Lord laughs at the wicked because he sees his day coming. Verse 15, though the wicked draw their sword and string their bows to attack the upright, the Lord will curse their swords to enter their own hearts and break their bows. Verse 16, even the poor righteous person is far better off than the abundance of the wicked. And verse 20, the wicked will perish. They will fade away. To end, to, and then to end this section, we're reminded again of what verse 9 said at 22, that those who are blessed by the Lord will not be overwhelmed because the Lord supports them with his hand. So why can we delight in the Lord our provider with a God-shaped view of our enemies? Because friends, we know the end from the beginning. We know the promises of God for tomorrow are sure and certain as the sun rising in the morning and setting in the evening. It's as sure as the leaves falling and the rains coming and the snow causing all of us in Portland to stay home and cower in fear of those slippery roads. Friend, regardless of what you're going through right now, God will be victorious. I told you all that I'm having a rough week. And to be honest, there's no guarantee that things are going to get better in the coming weeks, which is very disheartening. But what a good God we serve that though I chose this passage months ago, the Lord knew that this week especially I would need to meditate upon it. He knew I would need it as a lifeline. Like I said in the beginning, it has been an oasis because he knew I would need reminding of his faithfulness and of the guarantee of his victory over all of his enemies, even when those are sometimes within our own camp. And friend, where do you need this encouragement to persevere this morning? In what ways do you feel like the walls are closing in and and you need to be reminded no, no matter what happens to you in this life, 
Friend, the Lord remains faithful. We will have victory in the Lord. But I must remind you and prepare you to realize that your enemies may achieve significant victories over you in this life. The Lord promises our inheritance for a day that has yet to come. Which is to say, friends, we must live this life with a posture of humility. So verse 11 tells us, but the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. You know, Jesus said the exact same thing on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. And what better example do we have of humility than Jesus, who the scriptures say humbled himself to the point of death upon a cross. Over and over again, Jesus allowed his enemies to have what looked like victories, but they only delayed the inevitable. Jesus goes to the cross and dies in our place to achieve our salvation. And when he conquered death and when he rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God, the father, we see that Jesus inherits a name that is above every name. Jesus shows us that the humble truly do inherit the earth because Jesus has been given dominion over all creation. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation and he has inherited the earth. Now he has not yet fully realized that, but it is as good as his. It is already his. See, we who have the promised Holy Spirit have received what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 is the down payment of our inheritance. Jesus shows us that truly the humble will inherit the earth because he's already done it. If you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, the good news of Christianity is this. If you will humble yourself and recognize yourself as someone who needs a savior, then you can find in Jesus the most perfect and humble Savior who died so that you will not have to die, who died in your place so that you will not be, as Psalm 37 says, one who is cursed by the Lord and destroyed. Jesus became the curse for you so that you could be found blessed in the Lord as an inheritor of the Lord's possessions. You know, Psalm 37 shapes our perspective because it causes us to lift our eyes from what is right in front of us and and, and to look to the one who is the guarantee of all things. We will have many troubles in this life, but Jesus remains king over all. Psalm 37 teaches us that we can delight in the Lord, our provider, when we desire God above all else. We can delight in the Lord, our provider, and allow him to shape our perspective. And lastly, for us this morning, we can delight in the Lord, our provider, by delighting in his provisions. Let's read verses 23 through 40. A person's steps are established by the Lord, and he takes pleasure in his way. Though he falls, he will not be overwhelmed, because the Lord supports him with his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous abandoned or his children begging for bread. 
He is always generous, always lending, and his children are a blessing. Turn away from evil and do what is good and settle permanently. For the Lord loves justice and will not abandon his faithful ones. They are kept safe forever. But the children of the wicked will be destroyed. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it permanently. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks what is just. The instruction of his God is in his heart. His steps do not falter. The wicked one lies in wait for the righteous and intends to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in the power of the wicked one or allow him to be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will watch when the wicked are destroyed. I have seen a wicked, violent person, well-rooted like a flourishing native tree. Then I passed by and noticed he was gone. I searched for him, but he could not be found. Watch the blameless and observe the upright, for the person of peace will have a future. But transgressors will all be eliminated. The future of the wicked will be destroyed. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, their refuge in a time of distress. The Lord helps and delivers them. He will deliver them from the wicked and will save them because they take refuge in him. You know, verses 23 and 24 turn from the general promise of verses 21 and give a more specified encouragement to the individual. Verses 23 and 24 tell us that a person's steps are established by the Lord. And and you know what I believe this is to be David's acknowledgement that the Lord is sovereign over everything, over all of our lives, that he sits enthroned above and the Lord knows all of our steps because all of our steps have come from him. And it's certainly a mystery for how this works in our life. But what's not a mystery is what David says in verse 24. Though he falls, he will not be overwhelmed because the Lord supports him with his hand. Friends, it's a guarantee in this life that you and I will fall. Maybe you fell this morning. Maybe you committed some type of sin even before you got out of bed. Friends, we will fall. But it's the Lord that will lift us up. We will make mistakes We will not live up to our own expectations. We will not live up to the expectations of others, but look how the Lord provides. He will not allow us to be overwhelmed because the Lord supports us with his hand. You know, you've likely heard that phrase that God will never give us more than we can handle. And I think it's true, but I have to alter it. It's not that God never gives us more than we can handle. He does give us more than we can handle. He does bring about the floods of life to cause us to cry out to him. Friends, what God never gives us is more than he can handle. David reflects in this Psalm that though he falls, it's the Lord that supports him. David does not lift himself up. It's the Lord that lifts him up. And it's the Lord that lifts up us up. Where do you need to be reminded this morning that God is supporting you with his hand? Friends, this isn't limited to only certain types of falls. These aren't categorized into different types of sins like other religious systems believe. We fall. It's a guarantee. But the Lord supports us. That's a guarantee as well. He will keep us standing upright. 
So no matter what you're facing, you can lean heavily upon the Lord who established your steps and is always providing for you. Friends, the Lord is our provider. We can delight in him. And what has been laced throughout this chapter is this idea of assurance. Look again at verses 27 through 29. God assures us of his provisions. Verses 27 through 29 says this, Turn away from evil, do what is good, and settle permanently. For the Lord loves justice and will not abandon his faithful ones. They are kept safe forever but the children of the wicked will be destroyed. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it permanently. Verses 27 through 29 tell us that we will settle permanently, that we will be kept safe forever, that we will dwell in the land permanently. Friends, the Lord will not abandon his faithful ones. There's a confidence by which we call upon the Lord. It's like the relationship that parents have with their children. See, when their child is scared, the child knows that mom and dad are there to help them. They can sleep in the dark because they're not on their own. See, kids expect their parents to provide for them. They they feel the assurance that their parents will provide for them. And it's the same for us with the Lord. He is the one we can go to, and he's the one who promises to always be there. But it may not be in the way that we expect. You see, we all have stories and examples of how God answered our prayers, but not until he first changed them and shaped them and then answered them in a way that was far better and far different than our original prayer. See, God is shaping us and leading us and committed to us. You see, the Lord provides this assurance so that you and I can live freely in this world. Just like kids thrive under loving parents, so also can we thrive under the tender care of our loving God. Look at verse 34 and and see again how it picks up this idea of assurance. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will watch when the wicked are destroyed. Wait for the Lord keep his way. And did you see what the result is? Inheriting the land. Another promise of inheritance. It's the Lord's assurance and his call for us to depend upon him by waiting for him. We wait patiently for the Lord because we believe he is good on his word and true to provide for us. And the only reason we can wait is because we feel assured that the Lord will actually do what he has promised to do. See, friends, waiting displays confidence. Waiting is an act of trust. Just a a question for you to reflect on later. Where do you find it difficult to wait for the Lord today? Well, this psalm comes to a close with a reminder of what he has been saying throughout the entire psalm. Let's read again verses 39 through 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, the refuge in a time of distress, The Lord helps and delivers them. He will deliver them from the wicked and will save them because they take refuge in him. The salvation of the righteous doesn't come from the hands of the righteous. We are not the source of our deliverance. We're reminded again, it is from the Lord. This is true in the Old Testament and it's true in the new as well. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is what is often referred to as the great exchange that Christ took our sin upon himself. Not that he was a sinner, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, not that we are actually righteous. It is this exchange. We receive God's righteousness as he received our sin, so that in him God now sees our sin through Christ's righteousness. God is the one who delivers his righteous people. God is the one who exalts us over the wicked of this world. God is the one who saves us, and we are those who take refuge in him. The Lord, friends, is our shield and our cover, and he will do what he has promised to do. Brothers and sisters, the Lord will deliver you, though it may not come in your timeline, and it may not come in the way that you would like it to be. Psalm 37 teaches us that we can delight ourselves in the Lord, our provider. He's a good provider that we can desire above all else, who shapes the way we see our adversaries and who makes many provisions for us. So church, in what ways are you delighting in the Lord today? What is going on in your life that is, is attempting to rob you from your ability to delight in the Lord and trust in him? What is preventing you from seeing his good provision today? My encouragement, my exhortation, my my call for all of us is to look to him who established our steps and has assured us of his faithfulness towards us so that we can live freely and trust the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, it's because of your humility and your life that we can delight in you and desire and desire you above all else. Father, what a gift it is that we don't have to try and deliver ourselves because you are our deliverer. So God, we sing to you today, give praises to you today because we know that we can always delight in you because you are a good and faithful God. God, we praise you today in your name. Amen.